This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit with your host, Pat McMahon. Well, hi, everyone, wherever you are on the planet. I can only assure you that if you've listened to this program before, you may have come to the conclusion, an honest conclusion, that we cover an infinite number of subjects here under the grand title, The God Show. From a lot of different perspectives, uh, we've had such a variety of denominations on, though we are a really non-denominational broadcast, uh, but talking about uh, the Mormons' attitude toward this and the... uh, the Hebraic attitude toward this, and so on. But you know what? Even though we've discussed secularism in the past as it's reflected in different societies, I don't think we've ever devoted an entire program, and so we are. Uh, Jacques Berlinoblau uh, is the author of Secularism, The Basics, and Jacques, as I welcome you, to the God Show for the first time, uh, let me get really basic and ask you to please define secularism, won't you please, since it seems there are as many definitions as there are secularists. Right. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you, Pat, for having me on the God Show. Absolutely. And that's a great place to start. Uh, one of the claims I make in the book is one of the biggest problems with secularism as an idea is that nobody quite knows uh, what it actually seems to mean. So in my understanding, secularism refers to a strategy which a government adopts in an attempt to properly regulate the relationship between itself and the various religious groups under its jurisdiction and the relationships between those religious groups themselves. We could expand that, and we will in our discussion, but that's at the core, in a nutshell, what political secularism is. And Jacques comes to us with uh, uh, a, uh, a detailed and very impressive background, particularly impressive because he only includes three lines in the book. Jacques Berlinablau is a professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. End of bio. That's it. From now on, it's the Jacques and Pat show, the God show, uh, wherever it is that you're finding us. And and. To get back to the definition, Jacques, isn't it true, though, that so many people think of secularism uh, in terms of it being a reference to non-religious activity or even anti-religious activity? Sometimes it's free thinking. Am I close on any of those? You're absolutely correct, and it took me... 15 years to figure out exactly when these two very different isms became entangled and all knotted up. And the entanglement is not good for either. Uh, there's, there's overlap. There's a Venn diagram between secularism and atheism. But they're actually very different ideas 
with very different histories and very different intellectual genealogies. How did it begin? How did secularism begin or how did the confusion begin? The, conf- we begin? the confusion, first of all. The confusion set in in the 19th century. Um, the, I- the core ideas of secularism in my reconstruction are about 2,000 years old. And some of the basic building blocks of secular philosophy can be found in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Um, in the writings of John Locke in the 17th century, we start to see an actual blueprint for what I'm referring to as political secularism, and I'm sure we'll have more to say about that. In the 19th century, however, uh, what I call the swerve happened. Suddenly, secularism was defined for reasons that I still don't fully understand. In a way, it had never been defined before, and the definition encompassed not only non-belief, but aggressive dislike of religion bordering on the desire to eliminate religion. So Mm. in the 19th century, you have three or four uh, operative definitions of secularism uh, that are all at play at once, and kind of making sense of that confusion took me a long time, but I think I finally understood how and when and why all these isms became knotted around one another. Well, you mentioned John Locke. Uh, name some of the other well-known religious secularists with whom we sure. might be familiar. Uh, Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. No Martin Luther, no secularism, because Martin Luther is involved in a pitched battle with the papacy. And as many theologians before him had done, he begins to ask about what the limits of papal power are. And he comes to the conclusion that the job of limiting the overreach of the pope belongs to what he calls the secular prince or the sword or the state. Now, his assumption is the prince is a a good Christian, or at least should try to be a good Christian. But Martin Luther, in a very Janus-faced way, looks back at all the anger towards papal overreach, which has centuries of precedent in Christianity. And he also looks forward to thinkers like Roger Williams and John Locke and James Madison and Thomas Mm. Jefferson, Mm. who started to actualize a plan for thinking coherently about how a state would engage with the religious groups under its purview. I love the story about Thomas Jefferson taking it upon himself to rewrite the Bible. (laughs) Talk about that, if you will, because to me, that's one of the essences of secularism. It is and it isn't. I mean, I see what you're saying. Jefferson had a reputation which was probably not earned as an atheist, especially when he ran for president. Uh, Some of the opposition research about Mr. Jefferson was that he was a non-believer. And in 1801 and 1802, the worst possible thing you could ever say about a person was they were an atheist, that they were godless. I don't think Jefferson was an atheist. He was most likely some type of very esoteric deist. He did once refer to himself as a sect unto myself. 
uh, <laughs> which I find very, very funny. And naturally, we know about the Jefferson Bible, which is a Bible which, among other things, Jefferson kind of cut and pasted all the supernatural parts or the parts that he didn't like out of the text, mm-hmm. which takes a lot of what Jewish folks called chutzpah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jefferson <laughs> was an outlier. He was on the fringe in terms of what most uh, Americans of his day believed to be true about the proper relationship between church and state. He was also an advocate of one type of secularism known as separationism, uh, which eventually, eventually became very, very popular in the United States of America. But Thomas Jefferson probably wasn't, as Jewish folks say, a mensch, was he? <laughs> no. As we <laughs> learn about his sordid history um, with, with slavery and with enslaved persons, we have to put his considerable accomplishments in proper perspective. This is not to cancel or to negate uh, Thomas Jefferson's genius, but uh, some very, very clear mistakes were made. And as I often note to audiences, when I lecture on Thomas Jefferson, I often find that my African-American students, for very good reasons, are nowhere near as enthusiastic uh, about his legacy and about his statecraft as non-African-American uh, students. And I think that's totally, totally reasonable. So if we really want to understand Mr. Jefferson, we have to think of some of the uh, negative aspects of his character as well. We don't do hero worship in academe. Uh, that's not our job. That maybe is something that a, a state needs to do or a church needs to do. But as professors, uh, we try to keep it very, very real uh, when we assess the work of a major historical figure. And that's one of the reasons why we have uh, invited Professor Jacques Berlinablau, uh to The God Show to talk about the basics of secularism. And, and should we not at least begin with one of the most basic elements of discussion, at least in this country— and I'm sure others, and that is the separation of church and state. Where did that begin? Could we at least devote some time to that often misunderstood phrase? All right, so we're going to take a deep dive here. Feel free to redirect me, Pat, if I get too long-winded, as professors are wont to do. It is your program Uh, from now (laughs) through the next 45 minutes. It'll only take me 46 minutes to, to get this idea across. No, I'll be, I'll be brief. The idea of a wall of separation, as far as we know, the image itself, it's a, it's a strange metaphor, first appears probably in the early 17th century in the writings of the great Baptist dissenter, Roger Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, it knocks about some highfalutin philosophical and political treatises throughout the 17th and 18th century, but the notion of a wall of separation makes its great appearance at first in terms of our republic in Thomas Jefferson's 1802 Danbury letter um, to uh, letter to the Danbury Baptists. All right, so let me just go back one second. In 1789, we have the Bill of Rights, which Mr. Madison was reluctant to compose 
And we know of the religion clauses of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 16 words. That's it. 16 words, which Mr. Madison, I think, was very, very ambivalent about. Mr. Jefferson, when those words in 1789 were being written, was minister in France. He wasn't present for the composition of those words. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because in his 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptists, Thomas Jefferson does something very interesting and very fateful for the history of this country. He interprets those 16 words to mean that the Constitution demanded we build a wall of separation between church and state. Mm. As many of my conservative Christian friends have pointed out, the term separation of church and state or wall of separation is not in the Constitution. Yes. So what was Mr. Jefferson thinking? Uh, Mr. Jefferson was probably thinking back to Williams and thinking back to Locke and interpreting, as we're all allowed to do. But it's interesting that the idea of a wall of separation really had relatively little judicial import until seven decades later in a very famous case um, known as the Reynolds case, or sometimes it's sometimes called the Mormon bigamy or polygamy case. And then it took another seven decades before the 1947 Everson case, when Justice Hugo Black resurrected the wall metaphor. All right, so let me, let's bring it all in, because that was a lot. Grosso modo, Jefferson believes the Constitution to mandate this wall of separation between church and state. Nobody pays tremendous attention to that until the end of the 19th century, and then nobody pays tremendous attention to that again until 1947. However, from 1947 to 1985, we have what I refer to as the golden age of American separationist secularism. And the crowning moment, I think, is when John F. Kennedy on September 16th, I believe it is, 1960, in front of the Houston Ministerial Baptist Association, he's senator at the time, he's going to be president shortly, says, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. That's the high watermark of separationism as a judicial philosophy in this country. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you stand, by 1985, Justice William Rehnquist is going to declare the wall metaphor and the idea of separation of church and state to be bad history, bad metaphor, and something that should be explicitly abandoned. So from 1947 to 1985, we have this separationist moment. And since then, quite frankly, the courts have moved further and further and further away from thinking of separationism as a staple of our democracy. And as it is now, uh, 2022, uh, how is it applicable to the world of secularism? Well, separationism, I, I hate to say this, is, is either in the United States dead or on life support. Really? Um, yeah. Separationism as a doctrine that informs the thinking of the United States Supreme Court and even state courts has lost tremendous ground. As early as 1993, a George Washington University law professor had written an interesting book called The Lingering Death 
of separationism. So almost 30 years ago, jurists, professional jurists, had recognized that the courts were moving away from separationism. Uh, my complaints about separationism are as follows. It's not that I'm opposed to it. Uh, it's not particularly popular in terms of the way justices are thinking about the United States. Justice Rehnquist pointed out it may not have a very firm constitutional grounding or constitutional basis. But here's what I also don't like about the wall metaphor. I don't think wall metaphors have been good for us in the last five or 10 years. <laughs> I, I don't want to build walls. I, I don't think oh. optically, <laughs> um, from a brand imaging point of view, from brand optics, I, I don't think the American secular movement wants to talk about walls because that's not where their politics generally are. So in some of my more controversial writing on secularism, I have suggested that we abandon separationist secularism and become more curious about other forms of secularism in other countries and consider bringing them to the United States. Oh, and I want to spend a part of The God Show uh, in just a few minutes talking about secularism as it is practiced and defined in other cultures. But before, sure. we, before we leave uh, the multifaceted and uh, defined almost infinitely uh, phrase, separation of church and state, do you think that there was a uh, a moment in last week's dialogue with the presumed to be new uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, the candidate for that position, when she was asked to define on a scale of one to ten her faith, mm. her faith, I... I must say, I almost fell off the couch. Yeah, yeah. When we say separationism is concussed or on life support, this is what we mean. This would have been unthinkable in 1970, in 1965, in 1975, in 1985, and new strategies really might be necessary to stop uh, the types of infractions, I feel, uh, on uh, American democracy that we witnessed in uh, the confirmation hearings for the, Supreme, for the presumed Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned Jack Kennedy, by the way. I, as, uh, <laughs> as, a, uh, as a fellow who's carried the moniker John Patrick Michael McMahon around <laughs> long enough that nobody even bothers to ask me about the uh, the level from one to ten of my faith, um, although they certainly could. <laughs> but as an Irish Catholic for a long time, I uh, was thinking there was that subtle but ever-present reality up until 1960 and his election that there was a serious division uh, not allowing Catholics, among others, to 
to become president of the United States. Uh, there were those who ran, but they were almost dismissed because of their Absolutely. faith. Because the Vatican would run America. Remember those? Sure. Absolutely. So this goes back to some very interesting and complicated uh, disputes and episodes in the 19th century. Um, there are various ways of speaking about, if you'd like, Catholics and their history and their relationship to secularism. But here's something that's not great for secularism. In the 19th century, the idea of separation in church and state was often adopted by anti-Catholic nativist know-nothing bigots, yes. interestingly. So I understand how within the American Catholic community, there has always been an ambivalence, at least in the 19th century, about secularism. Secularism meant Protestants saying that we have to make sure those Catholics don't uh, infest our public life with their religious worldviews. It was profoundly anti-Catholic. However, because history is complex, at the very same time, roughly in the 1850s, 1860s, and 1870s, the Vatican was beholden to perhaps its most retrograde views on liberal democracy that it ever held. I refer to the yes. syllabus of errors, for example. So it's a complex synergy between the Vatican, which was tacking in an anti-liberal, anti-modernist direction, and Protestant nativists who were in the name of so-called secularism uh, inflicting anti-Catholic bigotry upon Catholic Americans. And John F. Kennedy, in his own way, resolves that tension. One, by becoming president of the United States, and two, uh, by saying he understands the value of core secular principles, that is not judging citizens on the basis of their religion or discriminating or offering advantages to them on the basis of their faith. So John F. Kennedy, God bless him, solved that for us, at least in that glorious golden age from 1947 to 1985. And he was found not to regularly confer with the Pope about American policies, <laughs> too, at the time. Of course. Uh, as a professor of Jewish civilization, though, Jacques, um, what about Judaism and secularism? Uh, is it more profoundly a part of uh, the Orthodox division, the conservative reform? Ooh. Great question. Secularism, as I say in the book, is situational. It depends on where you're, where you're standing. Let me give you an example. Um, some of the greatest proponents and activists and leaders in American separationist secularism were Jewish Americans. The name of Leo Pfeffer might ring a bell, who was kind of a grand legal strategist that helped create the environment that made Bible reading in public schools unconstitutional, mm -hmm. that made religious tests unconstitutional. I'm speaking of cases like Engel versus Vitale, Abington Township School District, um, Torcaso v. Watkins. There was a lot of Jewish energy behind that. And a lot of other religious minorities were involved uh, in all of that. So when I said secularism is situational, what did I mean, Pat? I mean that in the United States, Jews very much, still to this day, generally more liberal Jews, prefer strong boundaries. I don't want to say walls because you know how I feel about that. Boundaries between church and state. Mm -hmm. But Jews in Israel do not. <laughs> 
because it's the Jewish state and it's the homeland for the Jewish people. Muslims in India are amongst the greatest proponents of secularism because they are a minority compared to the Hindu majority. But Muslims in Pakistan are not. So one's appreciation for secular principles and ideas is often very transactional and very situational. It depends where you are. And most importantly, it depends whether you're a religious minority or not. As a general rule of thumb, religious minorities tend to like almost all forms of secularism because it protects them from the whims and vicissitudes and vagaries and anger of the religious majority. What about secularism as it's practiced across Europe? Uh, are there are there a number of uh, of broad differences, uh, particularly as compared with uh, our definition and practice of secularism in the United States? What about France? What about Germany? What about oh. the UK? So let's talk about France because France has its own model of secularism, which strikes Americans and Anglos in general as extremely bizarre and extremely draconian. So the French refer to it as laïcité. That is the term they use. Say that um, again, please. Laïcité. Laïcité. Yes. <laughs> and laïcité has a very different historical um, background and historical trajectory then does American separationist secularism. Um, France in 1789, as we know, had an extremely bloody and violent revolution, uh, which was led by the revolutionaries, the Jacobins, against what is known as the Ancien Regime, the old regime, which is in almost every country a union of conservative religious forces and elite members of the monarchy, the Ancien Regime. We didn't have that in the United States. So French secularism, known as laïcité, develops in violent conflictual battle with the Catholic Church. And this is why the decade from 1789 to 1799 is so bloody and so tragic and so dramatic, uh, because the revolutionaries had a bone to pick, if you will, uh, with French Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Well, then came Napoleon. And Napoleon kind of calmed tensions down in his unique and peculiar way. And he gave a little back to the church and he gave a little to the revolutionaries. It's very clever. But one core principle that Napoleon um, insisted upon, and this is really getting us to the definition of laïcité, is that the state runs things. The state is on top. There will be no contestation of the state by any religious group. So he implemented a system known as the Concordat system, where various religious groups essentially had to report to the state, tell the state what they were up to, who their rabbis were, who their uh, pastors were, what, where their churches were, how much the upkeep of the churches might be. And this pattern in French history exists to this day. So let's go back a second. What does laïcité at its core you ask me, maintain, it maintains that the state controls religion full stop. There's no ambiguity about that. 
So religions have to be monitored by the state and controlled by the state. And as long as they obey, as long as they stay within certain boundaries, generally in France, there are not major difficulties, though recently there have been. This is very different from the American model, where we don't like the state telling religious actors what they can and cannot do. We avoid that as much as we possibly can. Think of uh, COVID and think of the way the Supreme Court waffled on whether public worship, uh, which might lead to community spread, uh, was a constitutional right or mm-hmm. whether prohibiting such worship was a violation of constitutional rights. So the Franco model, the Gallic model, is extremely different from the Anglo model, which we see in the United States and which has some roots in the United Kingdom. Over the centuries, would you say that Roman Catholicism is the one faith uh, no matter how large or how small, but of all of the uh, mainstream religions then, um, mm-hmm. do, do you think that Roman Catholicism, in your opinion, Professor, is that faith that interferes with secularism more often than others? Great question. Um, Roman Catholicism and various forms of Islam tend to collide with secularism Mm -hmm. more than others. That is absolutely true. We had mentioned Pope Pius in the 19th century and the syllabus of errors. We could talk about ultramontanism, which is when a conservative, highly traditionalist religious component of Europe looked to the Vatican to sort of push back on emerging liberal democracies in the 19th century. However, however, Catholicism also can be very situational and transactional and shrewd and tactical. And we know of instances in which the Catholic Church has made peace with secularism. So it's often said that by the time of the Fifth Republic in France, the Catholic Church was like, okay, all right, we lose, but what can we win in this loss? What can we gain for Catholicism? And, and a fairly good peace has been achieved in France between the Catholic Church and the secular state. What about uh, Vatican II? Uh, Vatican II as, as led by John Twenty-Third. Sure. That reflects that great secular moment, that separationist moment. It's almost as if the Vatican uh, renounces the syllabus of errors. The Vatican acknowledges that rule by religious authorities might have a tremendous downside, and I mean governmental rule by religious authorities. I'm a huge fan of Vatican II for a variety of reasons. That's one of the greatest moments in the history of institutionalized religion, any religion. So Vatican II is very, very forward-looking on these questions, and that's not unrelated to the decision I just mentioned in France to sort of come to peace. The French Catholic Church comes to peace um, with uh, with laicite. There are other examples of the Catholic Church making its peace with secularism. A country that might surprise you, Uruguay, yes. in South America. Yeah, isn't that Catholic that was interesting? Church. How much attention you paid uh-huh. to a South American country that we really don't talk about that much. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Um, 
Right, because, and we're trying to figure out, well, where was the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church in Mexico, for example, fought in the 1850s and 1860s, and again, in the early decades of the 20th century, it fought encroaching secularism tooth and nail. But for a variety of complex historical reasons, the Catholic Church did not mount that battle in Uruguay. Some people say it has to do with the large population of Freemasons who had already softened the ground uh, for uh, the importation of secular ideas. There are various ways of looking at this. But the Catholic Church is, is very smart, and it plays a long game, and it thinks tactically and it thinks in very shrewd terms. So there is warrant for the claim that Catholicism in some instances has made its peace with secularism, and in some instances it has not. Interesting. Jacques Berlinablanc wrote Secularism, The Basics, and how long has this been out? This is fairly recent, isn't it? Yeah, it's only been out about two months now, two months. Well, one of the elements in the book that I found to be the perfect example of not being able to put the book down <laughs> is the 10 principles of political secularism. And I promised you that you would have all the time that you needed as a professor from Georgetown. Of course, naturally, I lied, as so many broadcasters do. But you have 21 minutes and 32 seconds to get through as many of the 10 as you possibly can, because this really encompasses a lot of information. Sure. Okay. Um, I, I don't want to belabor the listeners. I'll try to go through this as quickly as I can. In brief, my view is that secularism is this long civilizational project, and we don't yet have a perfect secularism. It's still in development. Um, but every secularism I know of takes these 10 principles. Uh, I extend it to 12 later in the book, but we needn't go there because we only have 20 minutes now. Takes these 10 principles and stacks them up and emphasizes them and de-emphasizes others. And that's what a secularism is. It's how a governmental authority thinks about the balance of these principles. So I'm going to very quickly run through a couple of them. I don't know if we'll get through all 10, uh, but let's see, let's see how far we can go. The first one is the idea of equality, uh, that for a secular government, all citizens, regardless of their religious belief and of late, regardless of their lack of religious belief must be equal in the eyes of the state. And most, we've been talking about Catholics. Most Catholics I know would say, yeah, right on. That mm -hmm. makes perfect sense. We like that. <laughs> next, the next secular principle is the idea of what I call the two powers, that there is a church and that there is a state. And that can get very complicated if you're an atheist. We talked about how secularism and atheism are different. Uh, if you're that rare type of atheist that believes religion shouldn't exist, you're not comfortable with a basic secular principle, which is the existence of mosque, synagogue, church on one side and state on the other. All right, let's move on to some others. Um, state supremacy, a key and controversial principle. All secularisms I know of ultimately believe that the state is on top. 
the French model, which I discussed earlier, really goes the extra mile, but that's nothing compared to the dastardly Soviet atheist secular model where the state became authoritarian and tyrannical. Nevertheless, if you were to sequence the genome of secularism, you'd find that every secularism under the sun, in its heart of hearts, believes that the state must have the final authority on all collectively binding hmm. decisions. All right, a couple of more. You want me to stop there? You want no, 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 there? please continue. All right. Um, internal constraints. Internal constraints, I call it. Because John Locke wasn't crazy, he understood that a state could run amok and go wild and be led by a tyrannical ruler. So one of Locke's ideas was every magistrate had to be bound by what we would call nowadays in the United States checks and balances. So what are some of the constraints on the power of the secular state, which the secular state endorses? I'll name some for you. A functioning judicial system, free and fair elections, uh, freedom of the press. So what I'm arguing is that secularism, for it to work and not be like the Soviet model, has to recognize the awesome power of the state and how that awesome power must be limited or curtailed, because if not, sure, it's an easy slide into tyranny. Uh, next principle, I'm sure everyone here will like it, freedom of conscience. Uh, this goes way back to Martin Luther, who said, thought is free, and the Pope, nor anyone, can never compel anyone's thought on religious matters, and heretics can never be persecuted, said the very forward-looking Martin Luther, because what one believes about God is completely sovereign and um, up to you. That's your decision that's between you and your creator. And, and Jacques, and Jacques yeah. as every successful author knows, when right. he's making an appearance or she is making an appearance, radio, television, whatever, uh, you always leave a few unspoken because that way then you're going to sell books for crying out loud so i would like if you don't if you don't mind i would like to tease the audience by saying there are several several more equally interesting but there's there's a couple that i would like you to concentrate on in the next few minutes and that is number seven of the ten principles of political secularism number seven toleration and you mentioned tolerance uh, quite a bit in the secularism, yeah. the basics book, uh, and toleration of diverse beliefs, not only religiously, but also when it comes to the LGBTQ community, uh, there is that lack of tolerance surrounding us. Right, right. Absolutely. So where does this go? This actually has roots more in the thought of Roger Williams, who lives a little bit before John Locke. And Roger Williams makes a very interesting observation, which I think many of your viewers will appreciate. God doesn't like, says Roger Williams, God doesn't like uniformity. God likes <laughs> multiplicity of belief. Is that a forward-looking thought for... 1630, 1640. I mean, it's just amazing that he had that insight. And Thomas Jefferson, 150 years later, uh, like a laser, picked up on it. So what is the good society? You could even say the good Christian society for Roger Williams. is a society where 
people venerate and worship God in different ways. And God likes that. Locke picks up on that fierce energy. And he writes in 1689 a letter concerning toleration. And in a letter concerning toleration, he says the chief characteristical mark of being a Christian is not fear of God, is not love of God, is not ritual uh, obedience to God, but toleration of others with whom we may think differently about God. So there's a corridor that goes from Williams to Locke, and this is a very, very um, sublime and central tenet of the secular worldview. And to be used not just religiously these days, but politically, Mm -hmm. the tolerance of others who have different beliefs politically, because it really does become, uh, I I think, a serious uh, barrier in in the world of communication, just basic communication. Oh, don't bring up that around Uncle Willie. Uh, you know, because <laughs> because we'll never get to dinner. Uh, sure, uh, I agree. Not there's another dimension to it. There there's tolerance of um, sexual difference. There's tolerance of different sexual preferences. Um, it, I think that's we're expanding in the 21st century the conception, the religious. So let's let's give a shout out to religion. Uh, this is born of a religious impulse this idea that God wants us to be tolerant towards others. I mean, I think you can find it in the book of Ruth, quite honestly. I think it's as old as the hills. I think you can find it in Islam of the Prophet Muhammad's time. It's there. It's in most religious traditions. What happens in the 20th and the 21st century is we broaden the conception of to whom we grant toleration. Of course, who is we? That's an interesting question. Uh, But the state, anyhow, (laughs) has to be tolerant of all reasonable claims to living the good life unless those claims harm others or harm the collective social body. So I I feel that toleration is one of these great religious ideas that has been, if you will, secularized, and it stands at the philosophical center of the secular project. And though it was some years ago, we still reflect as an example of tolerance the Nazis who mm-hmm. marched in Skokie, Illinois. Right, right. It's funny, I just wrote an article today about how that is changing. Um, the, the younger generations, the millennials and the Gen Zers, Gen Zers would be college-age kids, mm-hmm. um, are moving away from that absolute conception of freedom of speech. Isn't that interesting? Yes. That, that's, um, survey data is showing us that they feel that inclusivity trumps freedom of speech. And it's something in my work on secularism, since so much about secularism is about free expression. Uh, It's something I've been noticing a lot lately. So the younger generation might not have permitted that Mark in Skokie, Illinois, uh, to take place, or they might have found it to be very, very bizarre. Why would you let hateful people with hate in their hearts march through a Jewish community? Uh, At the time, it was seen as a victory of American toleration and America's ability to maintain order while tolerating or entertaining fringe opinions. The world has changed, Pat, because of social media in particular. 
And I, I do wonder if sometimes we need to re rethink or revisit or refresh the question of what types of speech we can actually tolerate in 2022. Well, as as an example of something that would not even have been considered a matter of a few years ago on college campuses, not a matter of freedom of religious speech or political speech, but the freedom to express humor as a professional mm. booked onto a campus. I don't know whether this is true of Georgetown, but mm. most of the stand-up comics that I either know or have read about just don't want to do college shows anymore. That that's used, so interesting. That, and that mm. used to be bread and butter uh, for the yeah, stand-up that's how comic. They train. Sure. Do you know that? Did you know that my next book is on comedy, by the way? Oh. So, so we're really, we've hit this point together. We're synergizing, Pat. We're synergizing. Yes, absolutely. And, and I'm going to call Kelly, your publicist, uh, probably in the morning, and say I would like to be among the first uh, to talk to Jacques about the world of comedy uh, and how it is applicable to the things we talk about on the God Show, including as he smoothly segues to number 10 principle. This one I'm jumping to because it really hit me in that it was written the way it was written. Number 10, right. 10 principles of political secularism, mm. reason. And I'm going to read reason. this, if, if I may please, I'm going to read this Please? as it is written, uh, and, uh, and then please pursue this. Reason for modern political secularisms, scripture and revelation are irrelevant. Good government mm. runs on reason, not on passion. It bases its decisions on logic, not prayerful emotion. Please pursue that. Yeah, um, the idea again uh, traces its roots to John Locke. Now, Mr. Madison and Mr. Jefferson had a tremendous, tremendous emphasis on the power of reason. I try to simplify it for students this way. At some point during the Enlightenment, the idea emerged that what powers public policy decisions had to be scientific, right? And we can expand that now uh, in the 21st century. We can say data um, numbers, analysis, scientific research, the experimental method. So all decisions that affect the collective in a secular state have to be grounded in reason. Obviously, this is very, very controversial to many different types of religious citizens who would like to ground public policy decisions in the scriptures or in uh, a surah or in a biblical verse or in a revelation given to a given prophet. So this is one of those points where secular states collide rather precipitously with certain types of conservative religious actors who believe the state must be guided for its own good and for its own existence, must be guided by God's word, as interpreted by aforesaid conservative uh, figures, right? who gets to interpret God's word? That's always a, that's always a really, really interesting question. Mm -hmm. But this is a true fissure uh, in democracies around the globe right now. I, I wonder if you, 
if you can reflect for just a moment, because we talked about uh, Catholicism a few minutes ago, and I wonder if you feel that secularism and a powerful entity like Roman Catholicism, a powerful mm. entity like Islam, a powerful entity here in the United States in particular of the LDS Church, can, mm. can those religious entities coexist successfully with secularism? In a secular, well, a secular state, I believe, is the only way they can coexist with one another. Um, uh, in other words, for those for those actors not to obliterate one another, uh, unfortunately, you need a secular state, and none of those actors tend to be very uh, welcoming of that idea. But it really did work very, very well in the United States in that aforementioned golden era from 1947 to 19. How many religious riots did we have in the United States in those 40 years? How many religious-based murders did we have uh. in the United States? This country has a terrible history on race, but on religion, we just don't have the flashpoints and the mob violence and the conflagrations that we see in other parts of the world and up until very, very recently in Ireland. We don't have that. It's not part of American. So something was working. I define secularism as the state regulate, regulating and monitoring relationships between religious groups. So one of the hardest things to get certain types of conservative religious actors to concede is they need the secular state to protect them from other religious groups. It's very hard to get any majoritarian religious group in any country to, to make that concession. So where the Catholic Church is in the majority, the bishops tend not to want to listen to the logic of secularism. However, where the Catholic Church is in the minority and they understand they have an interest in a state that protects Catholic citizens and lets them worship in peace, then you have much more sympathy for secular ideas. Jacques Berlinablau, your home is currently Washington, D.C. Your academic home is Washington, D.C. at Georgetown. And I wonder if, because of your surroundings and the reality of every day, uh, in that immediate area that you live in and work in, if you are deeply concerned about secularism and our political leadership? No, absolutely. Um, something, has, something has gone amiss. Um, this is the lowest point in American secularism, whether it's separationist or not, uh, since the early decades of the 20th century, prior to the Scopes trial, I would say, mm. uh, we are seeing massive formations of conservative religious actors, and we should name who they are. Um, these would be conservative white evangelicals and fundamentalists on the Protestant side, and traditionalist Roman Catholics on the Catholic side, with a smattering of um, uh, Mormons mattering of Orthodox Jews, joining them in. They have formed a coalition, which we would call the Christian right. And they have very skillfully, um, I would say, gained the political and legal system uh, and cast it in their own image. And there is a looming threat to American democracy. We spoke, I just spoke a moment ago, we never had a religious riot 
in the United States. I'm one of those folks that sees January 6th as in part, in part, a religious riot. Yes. If you look at the religious iconography, if you look at what people were wearing, what they're speaking about, how they were praying. We had people praying on the floor of the Senate chamber after they infiltrated it and chased the democratically elected lawmakers off the floor of, of the United States Senate. They started to pray. So that was a religious riot. And that's extremely rare in the history, the recent history of the United States. I mean, look at Philadelphia in the 1850s and 1860s. We could talk about riots, but in the last 100 years or so, when a separationist secularist status quo obtained, we just didn't have that. But rare, rare Jacques and terribly frightening, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, Terribly, terribly frightening. And I regret to say the worst might be yet to come unless we patch these holes and and rectify the situation very quickly. Well, then, with two minutes to go in this conversation (laughs) that I have so thoroughly enjoyed, give give our audience and to me a really good example of secularism at work, when it works and where it works. Sure. And I've enjoyed this conversation as well, Pat. Thank you so much for having me. Um, You know what's funny about secularism? I always say secularism is like a referee. Uh, When it's doing its job, nobody pays attention (laughs) to the referee. Uh, I know that sounds a little facetious, but that's actually what secularism is supposed to do. When secularism is working, everybody's going to church and praying, synagogue, mosque, right? They feel free. They feel they can be their religious selves. People who aren't religious don't feel constrained or coerced by the religious groups down below. And there it is. The the referee is just galloping along on the sidelines uh, with the whistle, maintaining order. That's when secularism works. So secularism is a funny thing, right? Um, It's this technology of governance, which has no home field advantage or supporters per se. It's something that a government is supposed to do. And when it does its job correctly, nobody notices it, which is fine. When it doesn't do its job or it's prohibited from doing its job, then we encounter the types of ructions that we have encountered over the last few decades, culminating on January 6, 2021 in the United States. But Jacques, with less than a minute, very briefly, who (laughs) has the whistle now? No one has the whistle. Um, The whistle is in the hands of those, I call them conservative, religious, anti-secular actors, crass actors. Uh, They've got the whistle. So the future lies in liberal Catholics, in liberal Protestants, in non-believers, in religious minorities of all stripes, recognizing that their freedom of and freedom from religion will be seriously imperiled if these conservative religious actors continue to have their way. And even and if you can't, if you can't spell Berlinerblau, it's okay. Just look for secularism, the basics. You won't regret it. And you found out about it on The God Show. I'm Pat McMahon.